0: can we over vaccinate our dogs ah that's a great question
1: um do dogs get covid (laughs) so i'm dying to know
0: Yes. (laughs) hey drew here i'm really excited to tell you about today's sponsor for the show fig and tyler Look, I see and use a lot of treats in my line of work as a certified dog behavior consultant. And to be honest with you, a lot of them are pretty terrible for dogs. That's why I love using Fig and Tyler's treats. They have an amazing discount program for pet professionals. The treats come in a variety of proteins, pet pro-sized bags that last, morsel-sized treats that are perfect for training. And I love the sample treat bags they send me for my classes. All you need to do is go to the Pet Pros tab on figandtyler.com and hit Join Program. Put Love Dog in the Referral tab, and that way they know I sent you. Like, if you're a pet parent and you want to get your hands on these premium dog treats that the pros use, they have a special offer just for our listeners. Go to figandtyler.com now and put Love Dog in the promo code at checkout. You're going to receive 10% off your first order. We want to give treats that embody quality, transparency and effectiveness. Giving single ingredient made USDA human grade inspected meat that aligns with my values and helps give me the results I'm looking for in my training and enrichment programs. They're also great for managing weight issues with dogs and it allows me to be careful with all these dogs who have specific diets and allergy concerns. Quality is literally built into the brand. It's peace of mind in a bag, no mystery ingredients, No additives, no fillers. They have a wide variety of treats like chicken hearts, duck liver, tilapia, beef liver, and goat's cheese. I love that I can make custom bundles and try a variety of proteins if I want to mix it up. So treat your dog to the best. Choose Fig and Tyler. Watch Tails wag with delight. Industry professionals will love the Pet Pro perks. Go sign up today. Again, the pet parents out there as a listener to today's podcast, you'll receive 10% off discount off your first order. Head over to the website now and put promo code LOVEDOG in at checkout. That's F-I-G-A-N-D-T-Y-L-E-R dot com. Promo code Love Dog.
1: Hi everyone. Welcome to this next episode of the Love Dog Podcast. I'm Mark Trucker and I'm here with my co-host Drew Webster. Hello. And one of the things that we wanted to do today was just tell you a very little bit about each of us so you can understand the roles that we hope to play here. In general, I have a business background in media and in content development. And I think the reason that it's helpful for you to know that is because when I speak in our interviews or I ask questions, I'm coming from the place of a pet parent or a pet guardian. And while we have A few constituencies that we think listen to the podcast, one including a professional constituency, I'm the voice of the pet parent and the pet guardian. And I think that can be helpful to those of us that are in that audience. And I'm Drew Webster,
0: certified dog behavior consultant and trainer. I'm also an educator and now podcaster. I'll be asking questions through the lens of an industry professional to give you insights and takeaways from my behavior-focused vantage point
1: hopefully that helps. And I think what I'd like to do, Drew, just for a second is talk about the interview that we did with Zenny. And there are some great takeaways from this. What did you find the most interesting about it? Well, he's such an
0: amazing and well-rounded professional. We're so lucky to have him on the show. I think he gives our pet parents and pet guardians some excellent tools to go and have these conversations with their veterinarians. And being an educated, informed pet parent. It gives us tools so that we can serve our dogs, and it serves us as well. And I think he does that pretty clearly in this interview. So we all walk away smarter and more informed.
1: Exactly. And for me, to be honest with you, it is the balance that he gives to the topic we're talking about today, which is vaccines. I was excited to have him on because when he wrote the article for us a couple of years ago, it is now. There was a lot of feedback we got from that article, and most of it was extremely positive because they felt that the way he presented it was very balanced. And since a lot of people aren't all about vaccines and other people are, and there are a lot of people that are in the middle, what he does here by introducing a core set of vaccines like Parvo, Rabies, and Distemper, and then presenting another set of vaccines, which are optional, or as he calls them, lifestyle, depending more on where you live and the kinds of things that your dog is exposed to, he balances it out that way. It's not, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach for Zenny, and I really appreciate that about him. Let me uh, read a quick bio on Dr. Ng. And by the way, I said Zenny, it's really pronounced Zeni. Zini Ng. He's a clinical associate professor of small animal primary care at the University of Tennessee College of Veterinary Medicine. He received his DVM from Cornell University, then completed an an internship at the ASPCA and an ABVP canine feline residency at Virginia Tech. His clinical interests include behavior, dentistry, preventive medicine, and management of chronic disease. His research and teaching interests span all aspects of the human-animal bond, animal welfare, diversity, equity, inclusion, and veterinary education. So with that, I just want to say we're lucky to have him. He's been a great friend to us, and I think we should just jump right into the show. Okay, Drew? Let's do it.
0: Hey there Mark. Hey there Drew. Thanks for having me
1: on here. Yeah, great to see you again, Dr. Z. Welcome back. Well, we are really happy you're here. Thank you for taking the time. You're one you're one busy guy and I know that. So, we really appreciate this. And on that note, in the introduction, I let everybody know that I talk about you as our veterinary in residence, <laughs> um, because you've done you've written four articles for us really, really powerful articles, especially this one we're going to be talking about today on vaccines. And I can't tell you how grateful we are. I just want to tell you with you listening in. So thank you. And I hope you don't mind being our veterinarian in residence and you can't charge me for it. Sorry.
2: <laughs> I appreciate that, that Mark. And uh, thank you for inviting me to do this and happy to share anything that we can do to improve our all of our animals health.
1: All right. Lives. Um, to get us started, you know, I told people a little bit about your academic credentials uh, when I read your bio. But how about if I let you just talk for a minute or two about the stuff that I didn't talk about, you know, other interests you may have outside of the university that are relevant and that you want to tell us about? Oh, yeah, that's, uh,
2: <laughs> I guess I could be talking about anything about about myself, but it sounds like you've kind of shared a little bit about where I've done a lot of my training. And a lot of my heart is actually in shelter medicine. I did my internship at the ASPCA and spent a, a bit of my time and career in kind of the health and welfare of those animals who are homeless and kind of finding that, that human-animal bond with them. But I guess one of my other areas of interest outside of canine and feline health and well-being is kind of the capacity of working animals. So I love kind of the service uh, that dogs in particular, therapy dogs and service animals in particular, can really provide for a lot of people. So I'm really interested in improving the health and well-being of those animals, um, making sure that any working animals really enjoy their jobs and are thriving at their at their jobs because they're just amazing to see when that when they work.
1: And you do that work locally and in, in where you are in Tennessee. There's a lot of that there.
2: Yeah, there there are there are a couple of organizations nearby, but I help run in specific our animal assisted therapy program, which is called Habit Human Animal Bond in Tennessee, where we have kind of therapy animal handlers uh, and their pets kind of go out to all different sort of uh, locations and facilities all throughout East Tennessee. Uh, so it's it's incredibly rewarding. I've done it with it with my um, dogs in my life, and just see uh, kind of the smiles that come on people's faces. Like when you're in a hospital and all of a sudden you see a dog pop by who's willing to come up and jump up next to you and you're able to pet them, it it kind of, yeah, it's real heartwarming to to see. So I love seeing, seeing things like that and seeing dogs really love their jobs.
1: So you a, take dogs fun. into schools with the kids and the kids reach of the dogs. That's a big part of being. 30. Yeah. Uh-huh. I've definitely
2: yeah. Been it before. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's super fun. So anything within in that capacity is an interest of mine and kind of related within that area is this whole kind of uh, discipline of veterinary social work. Which is uh, social workers working in veterinary settings, but also animal assisted therapy and kind of our work with animals kind of relates within that world.
0: Oh, Doctor Z, you're hitting all my notes. <laughs> oh, okay, great. Oh, yeah. yeah, I did some work with. We have a Havoc chapter that's based out of the Colorado State University. That's right. So Absolutely. they have a satellite uh, location now at the CSU Spur. So I got to teach that class last. It's like last summer. I was teaching them and then I at the University of Denver I teach animal interactions and social work.
1: So you're you're hitting all my notes. So Zini, this is an important conversation we're going to have today. The conversation about vaccines. And the article that you wrote for us as I said before is on lovedog.com and I want you to know that we got a lot of positive feedback about that article because it was so well balanced. So before I say anything else, could you tell our listeners what you want to talk about today so they hear from you why they might want to stick around and and what they're going to learn and why they should get a pencil and notepad out and take some notes? What What are you going to be talking about today? Oh, that's a great, great question. I think it's whatever you
2: guys want to be talking about. But what I want people to take home is that they can ha- now have, after listening to this, that they'll be able to ha- think about things and ha- be able to have an informed conversation with their veterinarian yeah. when making decisions about the preventative health for their for their dogs. So we'll be talking about kind of a lot of things with the, uh, like just the language that we use, like what are modified right. vaccines, re- recombinant, and just being right. at least familiar with these terms and being right. able to ask the right questions right. again make the best decisions for you and your pet. Because preventive health and vaccines, it's not a one-size-fits-all oh, situation.
1: There you go. So, That's okay. actually going to come up a little bit later, I think.
0: Yeah. You're always so generous and warm, Dr. Z, and I really appreciate that. I think it's really hard for the average uh, pet guardian to go into their veterinarian knowing, that, knowing what kinds of questions should they ask, what kind of language should they know, And I think you just make that very accessible. So I really appreciate you giving us this time.
1: Yeah. And what I will say is that from my own experience, veterinarians appreciate and enjoy talking about this with their clients. So it's a great segue. I think the first thing I'd like you to talk about is, can you describe the different kinds of vaccines that veterinarians use? They don't necessarily use all of them. They may prefer that, but I'm not going to say anything else. You tell us what are the different kinds of vaccines that these veterinarians use? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And especially when we,
2: because uh, people are probably now a lot more familiar with vaccines, given that we've just gotten through a pandemic and COVID right. and kind of just right. like making things for yourself. So they'll probably hear a lot of terms that are kind of, uh, kind of spun around. But as far as in veterinary medicine, there are three main types of vaccines. Modified by vaccines, recombinant vaccines, and kill vaccines. Killed. Um, yeah, killed, killed. killed also known as inactivated vaccines. So if we talk about those three groups and why they might matter to a pet owner. So modified live vaccines are probably had the greatest history since vaccines have come into existence with it with humans. And pretty much modified live vaccines are the actual they're usually in terms of viruses that are essentially weakened in a way. So that they are not going to cause the actual disease that they are, that they're obviously being vaccinated against, but it stimulates the immunity so that the immune system is able to be like, oh, I recognize that weaker version of kind of whatever virus that we're seeing and be able to mount an immune response to it. In general, the benefits of modified live vaccines are that they are going to provide a uh, Possibly quicker and longer-lasting immunity to the to the body. The downside of modified live vaccines are that there is a rare possibility that it could result in reversion to virulence. So, what reversion to virulence means is that since it is a weaker version of that virus or so, or that to, or that germ, it perhaps could cause that specific disease in that animal if it's given. But that is such a rare and kind of un. un usually unrealistic finding or effect that that should have.
0: Dr. Z, is that based more on the individual getting the vaccine or the vaccine? Like what would cause that anomaly? Does it have more to do with the individuals? Like I'm thinking their immune system or if they're weakened, I mean, I take, I take toddlers all the time and I'm like, no, he's got a cold. He's not getting a shot in my head. I, you know, that's not a great time for a vaccine. Is that, is there any value to that? You are spot on with that because for somebody who might have a weaker immune
2: system, I'm going to avoid. I'm going to avoid vaccines in in general. Or we'll talk about kind of the nuances about that. But if you do have a weakened immune system, maybe a modified live vaccine might not be the best vaccine to, to mm-hmm. choose for that particular animal because of that possibility of causing that reversion of virulence. But again, I want to say that vaccines are safe, and it is so rare and unlikely for that to happen. But at least wanted to share that with anybody if they ever. Have a question when they hear modified live vaccine. So, and the examples of modified live vaccines are going to be our classic distemper combination vaccine. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about what's included in that distemper vaccine, but that's an example of a classic modified live vaccine, as well as the intranasal bordetella vaccine. So that, those vaccines that you put in the nose many times that they are uh, modified live. So the t- second type that I wanted to talk about are killed vaccines. So killed vaccines are, oh, or, and they're also known as inactivated vaccines. That means that these are pretty much the dead version of that, usually bacteria, so that we are talking about. And so as far as the advantage for a killed vaccine is that they are not going to result in reversion to virulence. So it's not like if you vaccinate for them for like leptospirosis, it's not like that they can actually get that disease if if they have that. So for somebody with a weaker immune system, maybe that that could be something that we we could do. The disadvantages of uh, killed vaccines are that they do not result in uh, in as long of a duration of immunity. Uh, So that uh, you're probably going to...
1: As long as a duration of immunity, you said? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Compared to like
2: a modified live vaccine. So So you might need
1: them more. you might need it more frequently. Sure. Yeah, exactly. You might need those
2: boosters a little bit more frequently. Very, very good. And the other part of it is that because they are killed back, killed vaccines, the immune system needs to be stimulated a little bit more. So you'll probably hear this term of adjuvants in kind of conversations with veterinarians or preventive health and vaccines. And adjuvants are those kind of Added materials into the vaccine to further stimulate the immune system. It's kind of like a little flag to wave over to the immune system to be like, "Hey, I've got a dead virus right here. You need to pay attention to this and remember, remember this." So those are adjuvants that cause the immune system to to kind of work a little a little bit better. But. But at the end of the day, with killed vaccines, examples of those are going to be rabies. The rabies vaccine is our classic, like, no nonsense. Everybody gets a rabies vaccine. And it is killed, meaning that you do not, if you vaccinate somebody for rabies, that they are not going to actually get rabies. There's
1: no chance of that. So is there not any version of a modified live rabies vaccine? No, there is not. So oh, really? It's not okay. for dogs
2: and cats. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't okay. think that's really helpful.
0: So they're going to allow that. Are those adjuvants available? Like, is that common knowledge or can you list what those are anywhere? Is there any way for the average person to see what those might be?
2: Yeah. If you just Google up adjuvants um, that uh, you will probably see, and they're probably not going to be recognizable terms or um, kind of ingredients that are in there, but the most classic one that we think about, or the first thing that comes to my mind is aluminum um, as an as, 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 as,
1: so just a question a question I would have about the adjuvant, aluminum, would that be something that would be put in the vaccine that stabilizes the vaccine so that the vaccine can s- essentially sit on the shelf for a while? Or is the aluminum put in there to actually stimulate further stimulate the immune system?
2: Yeah, my under—that's a great question. My understanding that it is just for stimulating the immune system. I'm sure that there are some other preservatives or some other um, additives in there to make sure that their shelf life in the refrigerator usually. But I'm not going to speak to the science of the that actual vaccine technology. So. Um, And so other examples of that that we'll go into are leptospirosis, um, the canine influenza vaccine, um, and some Lyme vaccines that come as, as killed vaccines. So, and then that leads us to our third um, and kind of most newer generation of vaccines, which are called recombinant vaccines. Recombinant. Recombinant, uh, yes. So recombinant vaccines have kind of a mixed advantage because what recombinant vaccines are is that they are taking just a small piece of that virus or bacteria, so not the entire thing. And what they're doing is that they are recombining it into another kind of host virus So in the classic uh, examples of recombinant vaccines, they are for cats. And they use something called a canary pox vector vaccine. So what they do is they'll take that piece of, um, uh, yeah, if if we're talking about rabies, actually, in cats, they make a recombinant rabies in, in cats. They'll put it into this canary pox so that not only... Are we avoiding adjuvants? So it so recombinant vaccines do not include adjuvants, but they also have the advantage of not resulting in virulence, because you're only taking a piece of that uh, of that germ, that b- bacteria or virus, oh. so we cannot in back to reversion to virulence. Oh. And so that's a really neat technology that, uh, really applies for the safety of animals. And many times it's a little bit more expensive for those types of vaccines and sometimes can have a longer duration. Of okay. That's great. Examples Ooh. in dogs of the recombinant vaccine are going to be, there is a recombinant distemper, uh, vaccine. So even though I said that it comes as modified live, that, so the distemper vaccine can also be recombinant and, uh, um, there are some Lyme vaccines, Lyme disease vaccines that are recombinant in dogs. So that, those would
1: be the applications of those. So three yeah. vaccines. And it might be, I just, I just want to say from my own experience, it might be in cases where there are two different versions of a vaccine. Like you mentioned a few, you can get one as recombinant or like Lyme, for example, mm-hmm. or even distemper, I think you said, can be recombinant or killed. Is that right? Uh, recombinant or modified live. Okay. Recombinant or modified live. So chances are, you tell me if I'm wrong, chances are your veterinarian is going to have a preference for whatever reason. So even though there are a couple of options available to them, they might choose one and they'll have their reasons for it. So this is the conversation for the dog guardian, for the dog owner to have the conversation with the veterinarian and get a sense of where the veterinarian's coming from, why one over the other, right? Yeah, I love yeah. that. That's a perfect question to, to ask to somebody. Right. It's informed consent in, in a sort of way, right? Absolutely, and knowing
2: to ask that question in the first place. I think that veterinarians are going to be like, "How did you know that?" Right. <laughs> know when somebody says well, that, because
1: I listen to the Love Dog podcast.
2: That's how I know that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but hopefully, yeah. that the, those veterinarians
0: will be able to share of uh, why we do keep this one yeah. over
2: over yeah. over another.
0: Oh, yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah, okay. Along the lines of being in the know, it it, it got me thinking. I teach a lot of puppy classes and. You know, I've taught in veterinary facilities and everybody has their kind of policies on the schedules for puppy vaccinations. And a lot of times those are done, like you were saying, the word booster. And I'm wondering if you could explain the word booster. And also, is there any benefit to splitting those up versus giving a big cocktail, which I know sometimes happens, where they're getting multiple vaccines on one visit for puppy owners?
2: Yeah, those are great questions, and the ones that we talk about every day. Because I think that uh, puppy appointments are my like favorite things in the in the world. I mean, who doesn't love playing with with puppies that come to, come to the office and you get to spoil them? But as far as the question about boosters, uh, uh, so I think that that's a term that gets kind of thrown around all all over the place. It's easy to say, like people kind of understand that a booster is just kind of. Repeating the same vaccine that, that you had given the last time to almost boost, quote unquote, boost immunity. Is it the same dose? Yes, it is the same exact dose. It's the same exact vaccine that you are giving as kind of a booster. I don't know how much in the weeds that I would go into because I could explain to you a lot about like on maternal antibodies and the reasons why we are doing this, but that might be for the average average listener. I think that. It's easiest to understand it as we are repeating these vaccines to ensure that by the time that they reach uh, kind of their teenage time, which is probably about 16 to 20 weeks of age, so four to five months of age, by the time that they reach that age, they are quote unquote fully vaccinated and we can assure that they are immunized and protected against whatever we are vaccinating against. So the classic times that we talk about boosters, those puppy vaccines, is going to be the distemper vaccine. So a lot of people will say distemper, distemper com- combo of vaccines. And so what that includes is that it's not just distemper, it's distemper, adenovirus 2, and parvovirus Those are considered core core vaccines that every puppy should have starting between six to eight weeks and being boosted every two to four weeks until at least 16 weeks of age. So A2 is called adenovirus 2. It's also, you might see it as h which uh, stands for hepatitis. So A2, so adenovirus 2 and hepatitis are the same name for the vaccine. So you might see it written as DA2P or DHP. And many times you'll often see a second P added on. Um, and that second P stands, usually stands for parainfluenza. So it's distemper, adenovirus, parvovirus, those are all core vaccines added on with parainfluenza.
0: So that one's a little bit of a cocktail in itself, just that vaccine, right? Exactly.
2: So that's usually just given. Um, usually, most people know right front leg, that, that is a, that's a typically where it's always given. And given, again, every two to four weeks until... And
1: that's I'm one sure. shot?
2: That is one shot for all of those. Yeah, right. Yeah, for that distemper combo. And I would probably say for you, Drew, if you're seeing them in puppy class... Um, So when they say, oh, we want to give this every two to four weeks, how do you know whether or not you're supposed to get it two weeks later or whether or not you're supposed to get it four weeks later? And uh, the simple answer is it's based on their exposure. So if you have a puppy that that is going to be a couch potato, that these owners are like, I'm doing all of my puppy training at home. They're not going to see any other dog. They're not going to dog parks or anything else. I think it's fine. They're not my clients, by the way, I promise you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, that, that, yeah, you know what? Doing it every four weeks is fine. But if they are coming frequently into contact with other unknown dogs, I would want them to come in a little bit more frequently, like every two weeks, just to ensure that we have boosted that that immunity as, as best as, as we can.
0: And I know the the, the stance on when puppy owners should consider socializing has moved a lot over the last 15 or so years where it used to be like don't ever socialize puppies until they're fully vaccinated and you're just saying that 16 to 20 weeks so that's four to five months versus all of us trainers are going hold on hold on, on. the risk of under socialized of these dogs that are missing these developmental milestones is much higher than the risk of you getting uh, one of these diseases so we've got to do some moderate Dog-to-dog socializing in those long-term memory stages. Where are is the veterinary community at on this? As far as like, I still meet clients that are like carrying their dogs, these big dogs, at like four months, like he can't touch the ground. He's not fully vaccinated. They told me to carry him. I'm like, you're a very sweet person. Let's let's get down to it here.
2: Yeah, Drew, you are spot on. And I would say that. Because there is a prime time of socialization that needs to happen for all these puppies in that critical development period from that six to 16 weeks um, a period of time where we're like, hey, they're not fully vaccinated, that they could be susceptible to these other infectious diseases. But I actually think that long term, I think the risk of them being under socialized and having behavioral issues is much higher than getting one of these diseases. And the veterinary community recognizes this. they recognize that uh, yeah, like that we do have to have that socialization, but they also need to have that proper protection. yeah what and I, I kind of teach this to my students what the most ideal situation, honestly is is having those puppies who you know all about their preventative health status, that you know exactly that they have been vaccinated, that they have been dewormed, you know that they are healthy puppies, to have socialization amongst all those puppies who are coming to that veterinary clinic. So maybe one one day a week that you have puppy socialization classes for all the puppies who are around that age, who you know that they are properly vaccinated, all come together in in a safe space that you can guarantee that they are vaccinated. But if, it, Drew, if you were working side by side with a veterinary clinic and you have owners that you trust and you team up with a veterinary clinic that is kind of gives the check mark of, yeah, they've received their vaccines on this date, that date, and the, and the other, that you can guarantee that safety, then I think that that would be um, a fair place to be. You just don't want your puppies, even
0: though they're vaccinated, to be exposed to unknown dogs that you don't know anything about their status. In. Well, and that's sort of the advantage of going to say a sanctioned puppy class versus like a park meetup is, you know, just to enroll in the class, they've had to meet the same vaccination requirements that we asked you to meet with your puppy on kind of jumping back a little bit, Dr. Z, we're talking about breaking up those puppy boosters And I know it's rare for dogs to have those adverse reactions to puppies. Is that another advantage to kind of breaking those up so you know, oh, this is the one that dog's having a hard time with? Or is there any sort of trends around like if they're going to have an adverse reaction, it's going to be based on this vaccine or this type of situation? Yeah, for sure. So
2: as far as splitting up, so you can't really split up that single distemper combo vaccine. Right, I mean, yes. I guess you can get distemper alone, but usually I think most people are fine with giving the distemper
0: adenovirus parvo all at once, all the all at the same time. is the mixed drink, and the others are just the shots, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> the mixed drink for, for them. So <laughs> they get them all in the right front, front like every time
2: that they, they come every two to four weeks. But the thing about it is that as they go on in their vaccine series, you might decide to add on other vaccines, such as, or like that they're going to be required to have rabies at some point. And things like the rabies vaccine, you have to be at minimum 12 weeks of age in order to receive that. So um, they might get distemper and rabies at the same time. And then you might decide based on their lifestyle that, hey, you know what? I also need lepto. I also need Lyme. I also need influenza. And so therefore, you're adding on all all these vaccines all at the same appointment so you might you could end up giving distemper lepto lyme influenza rabies all at once on that same and appointment.
0: distemper could be three or four on its own yeah. right exactly. so you're talking about one appointment a puppy could be getting eight different yeah. cocktail of uh, vaccines and trust me, I've definitely seen that
2: happen before. Um, and a lot of puppies do fine off of, off of that. And, but, and why do
0: we why do we do that, Doctor Z? Is that purely like convenience to make sure we are getting everybody vaccinated, or why why did that become the norm? I, honestly, it's probably beca- it's because of convenience. Is that every single time that you are coming
2: to that clinic is probably an additional? Not only is there an additional cost, but it's just a barrier right. about. It oh, I got to make an appointment to get this vaccine, get to the vet. And that takes all this time out of the day. But for an owner who does have the the time and ability, I would absolutely separate those vaccines out by minimum two. That's
0: that's such a great takeaway because I know there are a bunch of clinics that offer vaccine clinics, that offer like drop-in vaccines. And from a training and behavior standpoint, I'm always trying to encourage what I call happy visits, where they just go to the vet for tummy rubs and meet the staff and get treats, if you break those up into, say, three different sessions, even though you might incur another cost, you could be setting your dog up for a lifetime of success of going to the vets. I mean, I've worked in so many clinics where half of what I'm doing is trying to teach the dog not to be so fearful about going to see the veterinarian. And one of the go-to things is to lower the intensity but increase the frequency of those visits. So just coming in, working for some treats, doing some training Getting touched on their body and, and and then leaving without anything really big and consequential happening. So that's a great takeaway.
2: Yeah, I love that, Drew. That is the ultimate preventive health is making sure that. Um, How do we get animals less fearful at the veterinary clinic? And that technique of just coming in for just a happy hello. But if you're giving just one shot and giving lots of peanut butter and treats and making sure that they're not having a bad experience, that's a lot different than getting like five shots all at once. It's like every time we have to restrain them. Give another injection, and they're like, ouch! And like that doesn't bode well for the future of that of that little puppy. So spreading them out is definitely something that that I recommend. And you might have to go every two weeks to the vet clinic or for like 10 for three months, three or four months. But that's also the only time in their life. This is the most important time of of a dog's life. And like, kind of after that, in the future, like it'll be a lot easier to separate that out. It's just that puppyhood is a critical time. And I think more frequently visits to the vet and positive visits to the vet is going to keep be key for a lifetime of health and happiness for them that's great
0: okay that's amazing thank you for that hey drew here i want to give a shout out to today's sponsor fig and tyler these are the premium treats i use exclusively in my training programs and with my own dog ozzy they have an amazing discount program for pet professionals. All you need to do is go to the Pet Pros tab on figandtyler.com, hit Join Program, put Love Dog in the Referral tab. If you're a pet parent and you want to get your hands on these premium treats that the pros use, they have a special offer for our listeners. Go to figandtyler.com now and put Love Dog in the promo code at checkout to receive 10% off your first order. The website's G A-N-D-T-Y-L-E-R.com. Also, if you're enjoying the show and you'd like to support us, go to ko-fi.com slash lovedog and donate the cost of a cup of coffee. It helps support us and so we can continue to bring you amazing guests and produce the show. Go on, buy us a cup of coffee. Or for our East Coast listeners, buy us a coffee. (laughs) Thank you.
1: Where I want to go now is to the conversation about people have different feelings about vaccines and it all came out during COVID, right? So, you know, the values that we have for ourselves are the values we're going to have for our our dogs in, in most cases. So there are the core group of vaccines that you've talked about that, that the dogs have to get. It's just, you have, they have to get them. There's no negotiation if you get a dog, you're getting your dog this set of vaccines, period. Then there's another category. I don't know whether you call them optional lifestyle or whatever. Two that I can think of that fall into that category would be Bordetello and Lyme. For example, you know, I in Colorado and Boulder now, Lyme, you don't hear much about Lyme, but where I came from in New York in the Northeast out in, you know, the Eastern end of Long Island, my dog almost died from it. It was a a horror show, (laughs) you know, and it's like every dog, you know, and every person, you know, is getting bitten by ticks all the time. So there's a geographical consideration there, right? Oh, a hundred percent. Okay, good. So, and this is by the way, what, even the people that are against vaccines, in general for themselves, you know, the (laughs) anti-vaxxers, you know, Um, even a few of them who I know contacted me to say that was a very fair and balanced article that the veterinarian you wrote for us because it very specifically laid out, you got, you got to get these vaccines for your dogs. It's not negotiable, but then there are a whole group of vaccines that are perhaps optional, which would may depend on, you know, where you live. So how prevalent the the disease might be in that area and how high, how high at risk is your dog for being exposed depending on, you know, how much your dog goes out, where you take your dog, how much contact it has with other, with other dogs. So explain for us, which are the Sorry, I don't care what you think about vaccines. Your dog has to have those, right? (laughs) And then which, and then which are optional? If you would be willing, I wouldn't mind you describing, not in great detail, but what what each of like what is distemper, what is parvo. Help us understand that at the same time.
2: Yeah, that's a a lot of really good sentiments and really and really good points right there to address. Um, so number one thing that I want to say, Mark, just to address that and clear that up is that, yes, there's a difference between these core vaccines, what, what, what I'll kind of refer to as core vaccines versus non-core. Core vaccines, as you kind of alluded to, are our non-negotiables or our mandatory vaccines. Right. As presented Absolutely. by v- veterinarians. The point that I want to make here is that, you know what? Everybody has a choice. And we all have choices. This is just like people are very much anti-vaxxers because it's like, it's my body. I'm not putting in anything that I don't want to go in them. And you know what? Pet owners have that choice too. They can decide like, hey, you know what? I'm not going to vaccinate them against rabies and I'm not going to vaccinate them against distemper, but recognize the implications that that is going to have for your animal. First off, as far as mandatory, um, the... Rabies is something that everybody knows or is aware of that they have to get. Um, and that is, it's not to protect animals. It's uh, the reason why it's mandatory is to protect humans' health. The, like right. the, our public health officials, they don't really care that much. I don't, I'm not going <laughs> to say that about about animals. But the, really, that mandatory vaccine or the core vaccine is to protect our public health. And the bi- laws are built to protect kids from dying, uh, from being exposed to a rabid, a rabid dog or a
1: rabid cat. And dogs bite all the time.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I don't know that you can really go to jail for not having your dog vaccinated against rabies, but trust me, if your dog who is not vaccinated bites a child, you better know that you're going to deal with a lot of, a lot of significant consequences. Um, and the thing about distemper, adenovirus, parovirus, that's another core vaccine because of the implications, maybe not for public health, but for dog health in general. In that, if you have a dog that's not vaccinated, not only are they risking their own personal health, but they're putting all other dogs that they are right. seeing at risk. Just like it's the whole concept of COVID and getting, um,
1: yeah, population health. Is is, herd, really is that like the herd immunity discussion? Exactly. We've been
2: exactly. Right. Like eating that minimum of 70% vaccination is going out.
1: Let, let me just ask you one question at this point. Are there, is this a state? mandated kind of thing, the rabies thing, can some states say, no, we, we're not going to force you. It's not the law. And other states, like if you have a dog, you have to get the rabies. It's it's not federally regulated. It is state by state. Uh, it's state by state. So mm-hmm. there probably are states where it's not mandatory.
2: Yeah. Or the laws might be different for cats versus dogs. So the great resource that I'll point out to you guys is rabiesaware.org
0: org. Yes, exactly. Okay. Okay. We'll include that in the show notes for our listeners.
2: Yeah. Right. yeah. So that will include, you just click on your state and it will tell you all the FAQs wow. on okay. the specifics about, about okay. rabies for them. Um, just know about the implications that they are core vaccines, rabies because it's protecting public health, and then distemper virus because it is so infectious. Um, and once it spreads out, it's not only deadly, but uh, um, it can result in severe consequences for everybody else.
1: People are under the impression, from what I gather, that some of these diseases have been eradicated. But then I hear, especially with this proliferation of uh, rescue dogs. You know, I hear about entire litters being infected with parvo, for example. It's not uncommon. I'm hearing, I'm hearing it a lot. Absolutely. So it's not been eradicated, and no, not at all. We see these diseases kind of all the
2: time. That's
1: part of the core. That's the core.
2: Yes, exactly. So as far as the, the core vaccines, and you have to know the other thing is just being aware of. What could happen to my dog if they actually got this disease? And that, and I think that being educated about that is really key because if you know that distemper, so distemper is an insidious virus that fortunately, you know what? The first time that I actually saw a case of distemper was when I was in China. I was working in a clinic in China. And, they, and going to vet school, we were also kind of, it, it was insinuated that, oh, because of vaccines have been so great, we don't see distemper. Anymore. And I never saw um, a case of distemper in my um, schooling or an internship or so, but it wasn't until I went to China where there were all these dogs who are not vaccinated and they're like, yeah, we see this all the the time. But it Mm -hmm. results in not only upper respiratory signs. So that's the key is that people don't really realize that when it first presents, it can look like a regular kennel cough, like just your run of the mill. Oh, they have border tell. They have kennel cough, but, and they get better. But then two weeks later, that they will start to come in with either GI signs, so some vomiting, some diarrhea, and uh, more than likely neurologic signs. So what you'll see is that you'll kind of start to see them twitch or their paw have like kind of a convulsion, which is really scary because by that point, you know that it's in the central nervous system and it's causing damage
0: that is going to be fatal for that dog pretty much. Oh my God. Like, that is not really in oh any So that cost-benefits analysis of doing the vaccine versus... This potentially happening right. to your pet is Yeah, right. So here. it is really scary, not
2: only for them, but also for all the other dogs around them and knowing that that is, is running rampant or, or around there. Adenovirus 2, and so remember that I said that uh, the other word for it was hepatitis. And if you know what hepatitis is, that's inflammation of the liver. Um, and so, well, this is usually a puppy sort of disease where, if they get infected with this adenovirus two, it will result in liver necrosis or the liver pretty much shutting down and dying um, because that's the target for for that. But also, adenovirus two is also—it's uh, getting into the into the weeds—but it also results in upper respiratory signs as well. So adenovirus 2 is what causes the upper respiratory signs, but it prevents against adenovirus 1, which is what causes the liver disease. But all you need to know is that adenovirus 2 can result in fatal liver disease. And then parvovirus, which is probably the most common disease that we see. All, all the time, everybody. I'm sure that if you've worked in a rescue or seen anybody, you've heard about parvovirus. And this is a virus, a GI virus, that infects the GI tract and kind of sloughs off the inner lying of the intestines. And that's real graphic and purposefully, because I've seen plenty of these parvo puppies die because of this, that they are just bleeding out both ends, that it's, it's really sad and tragic to watch. And the reason why it is so tragic is because these are preventable diseases. Yeah. They are preventable mm-hmm. with people who are conscientious and vaccinating their, their animals. Um, so when you see a case like that, you're like, how can you not, uh, not do that? That ounce of prevention worth a pound of how to cure. So those are our core vaccines.
0: Now, So a good way to think about that, Dr. Z, is those core are life-saving or preventative for zoonotic or another way to say that would be transmissible to people. Yes, exactly. So rabies is our zoonotic disease, so transmissible to to people. So
2: those are our core and the reason why those are non-negotiable. But again, you have a choice. Your pet is your property. More or less. But many hospitals will probably have a policy that if you decide, if you're like, hey, I'm an anti-vaxxer and I'm not you're not gonna put a rabies vaccine in my dog, they have every right to say, you know what? It's our hospital policy that we don't see I'm not putting my staff at risk with your dog for not getting vaccinated. So you just can't be a client. Yeah. One
1: those. thing I want to ask you about, I think it's been a good development over the past thirty years. I think they're vaccinating less frequently. Like rabies used to be every year. Now it's every three years. Is yeah. that because the formula has changed, or just because it wasn't necessary?
2: No, I think that you're you're absolutely right. Is that we're seeing different durations of immunity for all of these different vaccines. And so even though we have a standard, like we have a standard that, you know what, 98% of the population is going to be protected for, for whatever, like three years um, for, this, for this vaccine. It could actually be higher. But right. you know what, also know that vaccines at the end of the day, even though I'm, I'm not going to harp on this, but they're still companies, it's pharma, and they're not going to invest money into things that are going to make them less money. So saying that, hey, you know what? Maybe this rabies vaccine is actually good for five years or seven years. They're probably not going to like do all the FDA testing to assure that because that means that they're selling less vaccines. So a, a little small point not to, I, pharma is absolutely very necessary, but just recognize when we have research dollars and everything, recognize kind of the implications of, of where research money kind of goes. Um, so that our vaccines can possibly have longer duration of immunity, but um, it's just that they're not going to escape that testing. So, uh, but, but great question. But those are core vaccines. Any questions about, about those? clarifications about those oh, no that's great.
1: No that's just great. on to a so, few examples of the lifestyle vaccines. Lifestyle. Yeah exactly. Lifestyle lifestyle or would you categorize Lyme disease as a lifestyle vaccine? I don't know if that makes yeah. a lot of sense. Exactly. Is it?
2: Mm-hmm. it is so uh, lifestyle or non-core vaccines. So these right. are the optional lifestyle, because it really depends. That's why it's not cookie cutter to say that every pet is going to receive that. Or every pet is going to receive this. You're absolutely right, Mark, is that and I'm from New Jersey, so I know Lyme disease like and no other coming down here to Tennessee that people aren't really familiar with it, but it's definitely traipsing down in this area Um that it really depends on what's locally endemic. What do you have? What what are dogs exposed to in your specific area that you live in? And that really requires a good, open conversation with your veterinarian. So as far as non-core vaccines, probably as far as the top two that are most frequently given, even though they're non-core, are going to be number one, Bordetella. So Bordetella is a bacteria. It is an upper respiratory bacteria um, that results in your, and and it's commonly called kennel cough. So when people say, oh, I'm getting the kennel cough vaccine, it probably really is Bordetella. Um, recognize also that when people say kennel cough, that's not just Bordetella. Kennel cough is just the symptoms, um, the, the symptom of a dog coming in with coughing and likely it's infectious. But you can be infected with dozens of different b- bacteria and different viruses. So it's kind of like when we say that somebody has a cold. Yeah, they have a cold, they might have an infection, but you don't know exactly what that is, which specific b- bacteria. Right specific virus that is, but it's kind of a catch-all phrase. But Bordetella is probably the most common or the most frequently uh, seen bacteria that we see. Sometimes that Bordetella vaccine is also combined with adenovirus 2, which I mentioned before, and also parainfluenza. Parainfluenza, which is also combined, that could be
0: combined with that distemper
2: combination
0: vaccine. Mm-hmm. I have Here a question, point. Zini. Yeah. Are, are the intranasal Bordetella, the, the ones that are squirted in the nose versus the subcutaneous, which right. is the shot, are those the same virus going back to those first three? I love it to the, your question. So
2: back to our, our original conversation about the types of vaccines. So Bordetella has actually two types of vaccines that can be given. So number one is the modified live vaccine. So that can result in clinical signs, and that's given intranasally. Also, there's an oral vaccine for it. So anything that's given in the nose or in the mouth, that's going to be modified live. And that is the preferred route of inoculation. Versus there is a killed Bordetella vaccine that you give under the skin and give that to um, injectively. However, when push comes to shove, the, what, what has been demonstrated is that the protection of our intranasal vaccine highly surpasses. You're the one that is going to be injectable.
0: Is that why sometimes they they seem like they they say the words like they're good for a year versus six months, mm-hmm. or is that based more on the individual facility?
2: Yeah. So when people when facilities mandate that, I know plenty of of places that say, "Hey, every six months is what we're going to require." But actually, the science and the research shows that any of our intranasal and oral ones, they are all good for one year. And I mean, there's not really any harm in giving it every every six months, other than they might get a little bit snotty for a day for a day or two. Mm-hmm. But it's really unnecessary. Usually one year for for your average immunocompetent dog is going to be absolutely fine.
0: Mark, yeah. going back to the lifestyle phrase. I I think of these non-Cora's lifestyle because when Ozzy, who you saw my dog who's 11, was going with me to, I was a trainer in a boarding and daycare facility every day. I was on it. He was having Bordetella regularly. Now he only sees dogs I know. I know their vaccine histories, things like that at age 11. I don't do the Bordetella for him anymore. So it isn't part of our lifestyle that we're frequently socializing with big groups of unknown dogs. So I really kind of put that in that category in my head of like lifestyle stuff. Yeah, for sure. That yeah, I stuff. mean,
1: my uh, Hank, my adopted dog came with the vaccine, but I've never gotten my other dog's border. T- I did once because I was driving to Canada, and I believe in order to cross the border, you had to show proof of Bortella. For your health certificate, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you
2: did, right? Apple is definitely going to kind of mandate, warrant, some
1: requirements. Yeah, but in general, i probably, I don't know, especially for a younger, healthier dog, I'd probably not, unless there was some real impetus to do that. Yeah, and it really is exposure. So that's why it's a lifestyle. That's
2: why it's a choices, because... If you are seeing unknown dogs all the time, you're going to dog parks, doggy daycare, all of that, then, yeah, I would recommend it. But if they're, like, yeah, there's a couch potato or he doesn't really see any other or it has direct contact with it with dogs, then probably not as necessary.
1: You know what? And that's the thing, the dog park thing, right? I mean, uh-huh. I've just never been big on the dog park thing. I mean, when I lived on the east end of Long Island, I was because – there was a 20-acre dog park where they could be off lead, and we'd walk around the park for about a mile, and there wasn't all that much contact. But to go into on one of these heavily enclosed areas, uh, I've never been a big fan. So maybe that's one of the reasons why I've never jumped on Bordetello absolutely so you've made my choice. choice I love it love your point about your choice to that
2: you don't visit dog parks because yeah I rarely um ever go to, there there are a lot of risks of going to dog parks uh so not only infectious but just kind of all these unknown dogs that you don't know what they're gonna yeah, do exactly to interact with your dog but yeah Border tell is definitely one that I recommend if you are going to to dog parks. And I prefer the intranasal over the injectable because the injectable is something that if you are going to give it, and injectable is a killed vaccine, so not modified five live. And so it's probably going to result in needing more frequent boosters. So that is one that I would actually do every six months if you are giving it. But always intranasal or oral is, is preferred for Bordetella.
1: Mm-hmm. The
2: second vaccine that is probably most commonly given is leptospirosis. So I don't know if you know about about leptospirosis, but for those who this is a spirochete bacteria. So it's kind of a spindly bacteria that is transmitted through the urine, usually through the urine of wildlife. Um, So if they have any exposure to kind of Deer, opossums, raccoons, rats, Um, especially in New York City. I was always like, I was like, if they're not exposed to wildlife, why do they need lepto? But rats on subways and like, and everything, they definitely can carry lepto. And so, um, this is a bacteria that goes through the kidneys, gets peed out, and usually kind of lives in freestanding water and puddles. So just think about it. If your dog has any access to any, like your backyard, you open up the backyard and they're like, they're not seeing rats raccoons or whatever whatever else out there. But if a raccoon has peed in a puddle and it kind of sits there in that freestanding water, your little dog like kind of like puts their paw on it and then they come back in and maybe they all they do is take a lip of it. That can result in in pretty fast kidney failure as well as as well as liver failure. And sadly, um, that with this bacteria, that it absolutely can be fatal. And I feel so bad. My sister, uh, she, her beloved Shih Tzu, and she lives in Connecticut, um, she got back from a trip and um, her dog wasn't doing so well. And he was in liver and kidney failure. And he ended up being positive for lepto. And yeah, he either needed dialysis and a new kidney transplant For about thirty thousand dollars or yeah and even with that
1: is that showing up more in certain parts of the country or is it ubiquitous so to speak
2: i think you can probably find it in most areas any areas that have wildlife but yeah there are definitely updated maps of where it is located and because it is so so deadly and the thing is that my sister had vaccinated her dog for lepto but he was overdue for it by like oh. he'd gotten it two years ago instead of one year ago. Um so even with that, that that is an absolutely deadly and to see a dog kind of, kind of pass away from that, and they decided to say goodbye because
0: they didn't wow. have to go Well wow. it's such a great reminder and mark you're new to Boulder, but especially I see suburban areas that back up to like open space. We see this a lot in Colorado probably every three to five years, the veterinary community is going, by the way, encourage everybody to get lepto. There's a huge outbreak where they start seeing it with wildlife. And so it's one of those things, if you can just do it as preventative, you know, I think a lot of people hear that and go, oh, I'll just do the core ones. But going back to what you're saying about lifestyle, your lifestyle does also include where you live. So knowing those risks of if you're on the east Coast yeah you might have more lime or if you're in Texas okay maybe you need to do that one too or you know if you back up to wildlife areas you need to have that preventative thing on board just again that risk reward equation isn't isn't there for me where it's like I just I'd rather
1: do it. So here's what's coming to mind for me right here. we, we did a really great interview with Mark Beckoff and the whole premise there, you know Mark right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was a, it was a great conversation, and the whole idea was let your dog be a dog. And a, a co- part of that conversation was, you know, your dog is going to eat droppings, feces from wildlife, for example. That came up. Just let them. I mean, where I take Hank out to the field, I see deer droppings. The other day, he was kind of feasting on geese droppings. And there's this dilemma. Well, Mark says, you know, let them do it. And I'm like, we don't know what's in that. I mean, is is that that's the problem. So
0: I think to be fair, Mark was talking about creating autonomy and letting them sniff and interact with the world. But Certainly, again, those risk factors go up and Dr. Z can tell right. us more about like an animal who is carnivore, like coyote poop is probably going to have more bacteria than say geese poop and, and, no. and carry more bacteria. Well, it's so is that how this is there's, transmitted? they a I aligned mean, somewhere, right? Yeah,
2: exactly. As far as lepto, mm-hmm. leptospirosis is transmitted through, through urine. So she, you did say has, that.
1: Yes. Sorry. Sorry.
2: So no, it is, it is confusing. confusing, right? Yeah, is um has a host of other kind of kind of risk factors. Yeah, it's just knowing what what are the risks and what are fatal risks, I think, uh-huh. that, uh, that you really have. To find knowing that lepto is, yeah, absolute, absolutely. Um, I think that that is probably, and a lot of veterinarians consider leptospirosis to be a core vaccine, Um, even though it, it's still under our non- non-core, but most frequently given. And then, so as far as the other ones that we haven't talked about that are non-core, they are going to be influenza. So canine influenza virus. That's another upper respiratory vi- uh, virus that is spread just like... And many people will say, well, if you're getting Bordetella, then you should get influenza as, as well. And influenza is given under the skin. It's an injectable. It's killed. It is not given through the nose. If it were in, if it were through the nose and um, modified live, I probably would... Be, would probably recommend it a little bit more frequently. But um, honestly, for influenza, it really just depends on where you're at. Um, so if you are going, if you're crossing state borders or you're a competition dog, or show dog that is like traveling to different areas or so and exposed to lots of new dogs, those are the dogs that I absolutely would say influenza. But if you are not traveling and you're just going to your like doggy daycare or just going to the dog park with normal regular people that you interact with every day, it might not be as critical, but ask your veterinarian, ask them, has there been outbreaks of, of canine influenza in this area? Is this something I should worry about?
0: Now, how long does that vaccine last for?
2: Um, that is a, when you get your initial booster, um, it lasts for one year. So it's given annually. And how far apart is the booster? Two to four weeks. Okay. Yeah. So for most of these vaccines, that these non-core vaccines that we give, it's an initial, a booster two to four weeks later, and then every year. And you have to end giving them every year. So that is influenza our other upper respiratory part of our kennel cough so uh, so influenza could absolutely be implicated in, in what's called kennel cough. Um our other thing that we talked about was Lyme as a, um as a <laughs> lifestyle or not for vaccine and coming from New Jersey yeah so uh, Lyme is a bacteria for, and this was because it was discovered from in Lyme Connecticut that is transmitted through ticks so a tick has to bite um, a dog, and usually they actually have to be on there for a good 24 to 48 hours before they actually transmit this bacteria. This is a bacteria that will result in a slew of systemic disease. Uh, so usually the most common things that happen are that they get like lethargic, they're inappetent, they have a fever, their lymph nodes might be up, and also shifting leg lameness. You might notice that they're starting to limp on one leg, but then they get better, and then limp on the on the other. So those uh, things, and then they can result in fatal kidney disease, heart disease, and also neurologic diseases as, as well. Um, so I've definitely seen dogs die of, of My lives.
1: dog had Bell's palsy from it. Oh, my it, it goodness. It resolved, but, oh, my God. He had it like five or six times, and each time it presented differently. But the one common thing that he had every time, along with any of the other symptoms, was this weakness, and you could tell joint pain in, in his hind legs. Wow. That was the giveaway. I mean, really sad. Yeah.
2: Therapist. And it's so hard because I would say, probably at like 90, 95% of the dogs in the Northeast, in dogs and, um, where Lyme disease is right. endemic, right. probably have been exposed to Lyme disease and they have actual antibodies to it. Um, and even though that they were exposed and maybe that they might be sick and for the majority of dogs who do get Lyme disease, actually most of them end up being fine and and not really consequential, but there is probably about five to 10% of dogs who, if they get it, it is deadly. Um, and so that is what we want to do with the vaccine is kind of, uh, let's have the immune system kind of recognize this bacteria and be able to, uh, I want to
1: to ask you one question about that. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I'm just wondering if you just mentioned about, I think you said 5 or 10% of dogs that get Lyme actually will die from it. I get the sense that it's often misdiagnosed. Okay. Could could that be a reason why? Because, I mean, in my own experience, doxycycline pretty much takes care of it. But if it's being misdiagnosed, which it actually was in my dog's case for a while – before we found out what it was. You know, if it goes misdiagnosed like any other disease and and progresses, it can become too late.
2: Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. So, I think that really has to be on the veterinarian's radar to be like, okay, like this very weird presentation um or so absolutely could be Lyme disease. But also recognize that misdiagnosis also goes the other way is that maybe that they are sick and they are positive for lyme disease but that lyme disease isn't really the cause of their clinical signs they just happen to be co-infected and like and and everything as i said 90 percent of dogs who are positive they might not have any signs but Maybe that they have like cancer somewhere somewhere else that's completely right. not related, really, And they're saying, oh, they're dying of, of Lyme disease when you really have to recognize what is it, what is doing what right. Um So, yeah, percentages. And when we talk about those percentages, they're just based on I mean, yeah, somebody's done the research and they've done that research on that specific population um and to try and extrapolate and make generalizations but every dog is an individual and the response to a vaccine the disease is going to be an individual one so take it with a with a grain of salt but uh, yeah that's Ly- Lyme disease in a nutshell but my biggest thing more important than the vaccine itself is tick prevention I'm not going to recommend um that a dog get vaccinated if they are not going to be religious about tick prevention, because that's the one thing that can actually fully prevent Lyme disease. Because if that tick dies before it has the ability to transmit Lyme, then yeah, there's no need for that vaccine to really take um, to take effect. But I highly recommend it for any, especially Labradors and golden retrievers in areas where Lyme disease is endemic, because they right. have been overrepresented for being right. dying. Of, of Lyme
0: disease. And is that something breed specific, Dr. Z, or is that just because there's a higher prevalence of those types of dogs than say Bouvier de Flanders?
2: Yeah, I love that. Love that question. And, and I ask the same thing. Is it just because, oh, they're the most popular breeds, but actually, no, they are the ones who, for whatever reason, they actually get to glomerular nephritis, which is a fatal kidney disease associated with Lyme disease. So the end, that breed has been out of any other
0: breed of dog has had that overrepresentation. Interesting. So that is, is Lyme. We, We just listed a bunch of these different vaccines. Do you think, and obviously, you know, I'm, I'm of the, I'd rather prevent it, especially any of these that could result in a fatality. Can we over vaccinate our dogs? Ah, that's a great question. That is a great question. Thank you for
1: asking that question.
0: And everybody has it because there's
1: a lot that we
2: can vaccinate to them for, and it really depends on the individual. If you tell me that, hey, you know what? I have a dog that we go hiking three times a week. We go to the dog parks. We go. Um, we travel state <laughs> borders. We go to competitions. I would absolutely say that you kind of need all of those things that to totally be listed. Yeah. That would not be considered overvaccinated. Well, kind
0: of going back to that lifestyle, right? It really—it's yeah. kind of like you need more information about the the caregiver than than the dog to exactly. make that decision, right? So,
2: I think that over-vaccinated, it, it really depends
0: on the individual and what they truly need.
2: What is their exposure? What is their lifestyle? Because, yeah, if, you're, if you have a dog that's not leaving the house and, um, and they're being like, oh, yeah, you need lepto, influenza, blah, 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 then, yeah, that might be considered over-vaccinating. But right. I think for if you know that, hey, you know what, there's the potential that they could get affected, then I, I think that that might be very well appropriate. Um, and if they are receiving all those vaccines, again, as we talked about, to kind of split them up. So that they're not getting them all on, on the same day. Because I think that that or that is actually one of the criteria one of the risk factors for having an adverse event to vaccines is having the more killed
0: vaccines that they receive on the same day, the more likely that they are going to have an adverse event. That's great. And, you know, I, I I've got a very senior well, moving into senior dog and I've lived with a lot of senior dogs and and I always wonder about the strength of their immune system or you know, an aging pet or an immunocompromised pet, should they be given any special considerations when it comes to vaccines? Oh, yes, 100%. And I love having this conversation with the the
2: dog owner. And if you're a dog owner listening, hopefully that, I mean, you obviously care enough to kind of be thinking about vaccines and having questions, because I think that that will be the number one question on any senior dog's kind of, uh, an owner of a senior dog's kind of life is that, you know what, does he need these vaccines? Is he already protected? All those questions. And again, it really depends on that conversation with your veterinarian. And what is the health status of your of your dog? Um, so I think that by the time a dog reaches, and it depends on the breed of dog, but probably like eight, ten years of age, and they've received all of their vaccines, uh, kind of religiously and at the appropriate timing. Um, what we know about distemper, that our core distemper adenovirus parvo vaccines, is that they likely have what we call titers or antibodies to those diseases probably for seven to nine years and likely that the, and many of them can have lifelong immunity. Even seven
0: to nine years from the point they got vaccinated or just like stage of life. Seven to nine years from their point of vaccine
2: vaccination. But again, as I said before, vaccine companies aren't really going to promote that or say that because if you don't, because they'd be losing money. If we don't, we're not. Are
1: you reading my mind there Zini? Yeah.
2: But at Uh, the same time, like again, but, that's for, for some dogs, but some dogs might lose their, their immunity a lot sooner. Some of the dogs might lose them in two years instead of the, the three. So
0: it really depends. We're just talking about averages here. Dr. Z, I've heard of titer testing. Which, which of the vaccines can you do that for? Um, so you can actually do
2: that for most of them. The ones that are commercially available are for our core vaccines, So distemper, anovirus, parvovirus. Um, as well as certain, um, laboratories do rabies titer testing. And then actually, uh, lepto as well. You can check antibodies for, for lepto at, at least. So those are ones that you, we definitively have, um, have the ability to diagnostically test that because that can guide um, that can be an important tool in somebody being like, do I need to vaccinate my 10 year old, uh, 10 year old dog? And Mm -hmm. that really requires an intimate conversation with that, with your veterinarian to kind of say, this is the, this is the daily life of my, my dog. And if they're saying that, you know what, you have a self healthy senior dog who does not leave the house. All he does is go to the backyard um, or so he doesn't interact with it with any other dogs um, or so. Then I would probably say, you know what, let's let's do some titers for distemper and parvovirus because those are going to be transmitted through dog to dog contact. You probably don't need Bordetella or influenza because you're not seeing any other dogs. However, lepto, since you're going in the backyard and uh, maybe that there are skunks or wildlife who, who are in there, maybe that one is going to be one that I'm going to advise that you to do. And if you have this senior dog who's like 12 years old um, or or so, but also what if this 12-year-old dog also has hypothyroidism? What if they have um, a skin condition? What if they have GI disease and they are still visiting? They're going to the dog park or they're um, going to, um, to dog daycare. That is one that I would say, hey, even their immune system is compromised. So you know what? We Absolutely need to vaccinate those dogs, and I, I don't really care what the titer says. I might not, not say that, but as far as an informed thing, I'm taking, I'm weighing the benefits and risks of vaccinating that senior dog. So there's not a one size fits all answer to that. It just requires an open conversation with the veterinarian and the veterinarian understanding what is the health status of that of that animal, and using titers as a tool. In there, if that if appropriate, that's great. Thank you.
1: Um, do dogs get COVID? <laughs>
2: so back when, the, and and I'm sure that will still continue to have research about uh, COVID and dogs. I'm, I'm dying there, to know. <laughs> yeah, there have been implications, actually, more in cats. The data that we have, kind of stated, has been more in cats um, of of having COVID and maybe having clinical signs. But honestly, no, not COVID, as in they're gonna get COVID, that they get affected in their respiratory tract and they can have clinical, and that they have clinical signs like people do. We have not observed that. Maybe, and so what has come out in the data is that if you swab a nose and we do our classic COVID testing, and uh, a dog has been living in a positive household. Maybe that they will test positive on there, so that they are inoculated, or you can find it in them. But does it cause disease? Probably not. At this point, we we don't have the, the evidence to state that.
1: And you know, with all this talk about mRNA vaccines for humans, and yeah. there seems to be a lot of movement in that direction in the animal world. Has there been any talk of mRNA? Yeah, in that space right now, there are
2: no MR, mRNA vaccines available to the, our dogs dogs and cats that we work with that are traditional. However, I'm sure that because this is a technology coming from humans, I'm sure that down the line, if, if there is a benefit for mRNA vaccines over our killed, modified live and recombinant vaccines, that I'm sure that in our lifetimes we will see that be available.
1: So Drew, are we ready to move on to Hot Topic?
0: Yeah, this is this has been so helpful. I think there's yeah, so many big that. takeaways there that are really going to help people make informed choices. And I think, like you said in the beginning, one of the most important things is how do you start these conversations with your caregivers, with your veterinarians, with those nurses that are helping you and and just showing them like, I know a few things. I have a few questions. It seems like everybody in the medical field is very happy to have those conversations. And do you, do you like when you get those clients? Are you like, Oh no, this guy's a pain in the butt. He knows (laughs) a little bit. He knows a little bit of stuff or, or do you encourage that kind of self exploration and, you know, trying to avoid Dr. Google, but uh, being informed for giving your pet the best care.
2: Yeah, um, I I love it. Honestly, I mean, but I am very much biased because I'm an educator. I'm um, a faculty member, yes, so you I'm
0: extremely nice.
2: <laughs> um, so of course, that I'm going to be like, yeah, let's nerd out on on this. Um are yeah, get
0: so many emails from veterinarians. Like, oh why,
2: why? <laughs> <laughs> um, but but yeah, and I think that veterinarians, all veterinarians, are nerdy people. Like, we all love to kind of uh, kind of learn teach others, I think that's a part of our roles as, as veterinarians, is educating and being public health providers and just wanting the best for our animals, is providing the very best care that we can for our animals um, and sharing that with our owners is, is critical. So do not uh, do not hesitate and just being like, hey, I heard this podcast I wonder what your thoughts are on this because, uh, yeah, different veterinarians are going to have different opinions um, about those things. Mm-hmm.
1: So for the hot topic, I think we should talk about the mysterious respiratory disease that's out there that's that's getting all the attention. And I guess this talk about, um, you know, you can update us on what you know. Uh, Is there any movement in terms of it being bacterial or viral? Is the media suddenly making a big deal about it? Yeah, so
2: I think that as far as the information that we know right now, and you know what, today, can I say the date is December 7th, um, by the time that this is broadcast, I, I kind of don't want to say too much, because maybe the entire situation of everything is going to change. Um, yeah. And we will know that the answers to this, but so whether or not this is relevant, is kind of besides, besides the point. But um, as far as upper respiratory disease, what we call kennel cough. Again, most kennel cough, if you have a healthy, immunocompetent dog, and they are exposed to whatever bacteria or virus it is, it's like the cold. It's kind of the flu. They might be down for for a week or two, but they're we'll probably going to get over it. And that's kind of – I mean, that's what I thought was – but we also history and lessons learned. hindsight is twenty twenty. We also saw that with COVID, is that okay? If it's a virus, then if, yeah, healthy people should be be okay. But the thing is that. that- that wasn't the case. And that's where it gets scary is that with our typical interventions, if our dogs are not improving as expected, then you're like, oh, what is this? And so that's kind of what stirred this on is that, yeah, these dogs had, there wasn't anything extraordinary about their clinical signs or their coughing, sneezing, fever or or so, but it was the fact that they put these dogs on antibiotics. So typically doxycycline or amoxicillin that gets whatever is causing, uh, causing kennel cough, if it is Bordetella. Bordetella is very susceptible to those antibiotics that they get better. But the fact that some of these dogs did not cause them to be like, okay, what is this? And people don't routinely, I don't think a lot of veterinarians routinely test for which bacteria or virus it is, because again, it's going to get better no matter what. I'm not going to charge you $200 to do that test. But right. um, I think that in areas of like Washington State, Oregon, and kind of areas of the Northeast, that they had some upticks in uh, upper respiratory disease that, wasn't, uh, that was not resolving. And when they did the test for it, none of the typical uh, bacteria or virus showed up being positive. So they're like, like, okay, well, the ones that we routinely test for did not end up being positive, but they have some sort of infection. What is it? And so that is really, the unknown is the fear in that. And so at this time, we don't know the exact numbers. Like we don't know the epidemiology of this. Is this widespread what this is like? And so we don't know. I've heard both sides. I've heard that initially I saw some documentation that that signs pointed towards that it was viral, but then I'm seeing other evidence of being like, oh, there's some dogs who have a bacterial component. And also, there a lot of these dogs might have co-infections. So even though that they have, they might have Bordetella and whatever this is. But at the end of the day, most of these, uh, these dogs, I think, and we also don't know the true fatality rate. We, we don't know. Um, we just don't okay. have that information. So, and I don't want to, I don't want to be a fear monger. And like kind of because what we don't know and what we're not educated about is what we fear the most. And so at this time, our biggest recommendations is to keep our dogs healthy, use our common sense in being like, you know what, um, if we don't have to go to doggy daycare, or if we don't have to um, go to the dog parks or so then I think during this time of the, of the what we don't know. Um, let's keep them in, indoors and make sure that our dogs are vaccinated for the things that we can vaccinate for. So Bordetella, are, there, are there
0: some of those optional or non-core vaccines that are potentially helpful since it's a respiratory, like the influenza or Bordetella with those, you know, you mentioned it being December, we're coming into holiday season. There's a lot of people who they've booked their travels and things like that. They have to go into a boarding facility with their animal. Yeah. What, what would you recommend if somebody told you they absolutely have to do those things, or it's part of their support so they can go to work? You know, and it's not really an optional. What would you recommend them uh, as a kind of modality of prevention?
2: Yeah, I absolutely, I absolutely would recommend them getting the intranasal Bordetella va- uh, vaccine, and the, usually the intranasal Bordetella, as I've mentioned before, comes with adenovirus and. Para influenza, or that's one of the the forms that to, that it can take, as well as our canine influenza vaccine. I would vaccinate them for all the upper respiratory things because the thing about um doing the intranasal vaccine is that even though it's targeted for those specific bacteria and viruses, is that it stimulates that local muco what we call mucosal immunity um, with IgAs, so immunoglobulin A's. So even though that it's targeted towards a specific bacteria, maybe there is cross protection. So I think that having that cross-protection and inoculating in the nasal passage is probably going to be the best way to support the just general respiratory, respiratory system and respiratory health. So um, if somebody is, is worried, and especially if you have a dog who's like older and their immune system might not be as great, yeah, absolutely vaccinate them. And just, uh, yeah, and, and use a keen eye and use caution and, and also and ask your veterinarian. Ask your veterinarian, have you seen cases of this mystery upper respiratory um, in our midst? Is this something that we need to worry about? Because I have a feeling that it's going to be very specific hot spots. I don't think that it's going to be it's not going to be like a pandemic of COVID where the entire world is going to have to shut down or all dogs are going to have to be kept apart. I think it's probably just very local places. We'll probably find out that it's some obscure um, kind of bacteria. But overall, as long as and maybe if we have the right antibiotic and we take the right precautions and we have immunocompetent dog, they're going to be just fine. So until we know more, um, I hesitate to say, say more, but I would
0: say just keep your pets healthy, keep them vaccinated. That's great because it's so hard to know when something like this happens. I mean, and we see this with food recalls. We see this with dog bites of going, is this a a statistically significant uptick in this? Or is this like, whoa, everybody's getting on board and, and the media keeps re- purposing the same information so you see the same article coming out on multiple news sources and going are, is this getting worse or is this more people are catching this story and it getting out there so it's really hard to know and right. we're kind of in the early days exactly. I found a really good resource on uh, called worms and germs blog.com yeah familiar <laughs> all? That's, oh, that that one, of one of my favorite
1: one of my favorite
0: Mark's no. like go on yeah Who's who's a veterinarian in Canada? It's um, Dr. Scott. Weiss. Weiss, yeah. He is the leading infectious disease
2: researcher and epidemiologist. And I would absolutely, that's who I refer to as far as any of the updates and any of the data regarding that. So definitely follow him, follow that that blog post because he will absolutely have the most up-to-date and accurate information. So hopefully by the time that this is out, uh, we'll kind of, uh, and and what he initially said was that this just sounds like it's more social media hype than anything else, but we have to take caution. In, in everything that, that
0: we do. But, but to the point, no matter where this goes, it's it's kind of a good strategy for people of when this happens, when we hear, I mean, you're saying I, I as a professional, don't want a fear monger. We are calling this the mysterious respiratory virus. I mean, <laughs> no. what's not scary about that, right? And exactly. when your number one goal is protecting your animal, it just seems like, wow, we need more information. So it's so great that people like yourself, professionals are willing to have these discussions so that people like Mark and I can try to get our heads around it and be like, what do we need to do to keep my animals safe? Exactly. And knowing what those reputable resources are, um, because
2: I think that, yeah, if you're on Instagram and Facebook, yeah, you will have a lot, of <laughs> lies is out, to, out there. But yeah, knowing that, you know what? Go to wormsandgerms.com and uh, you will Worms
0: see. And germs blog. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'll leave it in the show notes.
2: Uh, that that will probably be your most accurate and most up-to-date uh, um, kind of source of information. So wow. I hope that, uh, yeah, that dogs are kept safe and, and healthy and that we will pass this without, um, oh, without too many scars.
1: Well, this has been incredibly informative, incredibly helpful. Thank you. You know, I hope you come back because there's just so much to talk about. But a lot of great information here. Thank you so much. Well, Dr. Z, you're such a wealth of knowledge, and we're
0: so lucky. I mean, we've got a couple different articles on lovedog.com. People can check out from you. Is there anywhere else you want people to reach out, or or is there any other way for people to interact if they have any questions or want to know about your work and, and the things you're doing?
2: Yeah, thanks. I think, I mean, just, well, look me up at University of Tennessee. I'm usually responsive to, to emails when I, get a, when I get a chance. So look me, look me up there. And I'm always happy to, to ask any questions from any caring and informed uh, kind of dog owners, pet owners, um, and so that we can help you guys make the right right decisions and the best decisions for keeping your dog living his happiest, healthiest, longest life possible.
1: Wow can't say it any better than that drew <laughs> thank no, you this so is
0: much just thank you for your time and your work and, and yeah. you know we greatly appreciate you being here with us thank you thank you mark and drew and everybody listening today thank so, you
2: um, hope you guys stay happy healthy and safe you too have a great holiday
0: Hey Drew here I want to give a shout out to our sponsor Fig and Tyler these are the premium treats I use exclusively in my training programs with my own dog they have an amazing discount program for professionals all you need to do is hit the pet pros tab on figandtyler.com hit join program put love dog in the referral tab if you're a pet parent you want to get your hands on these premium dog treats the pros use they have a special offer just for our listeners go to figandtyler.com now Put Love dog in the promo code at checkout to receive 10% off your first order. The website's F-I-G-A-N-D-T-Y-L-E-R
1: dot Well, that was quite something, wasn't it? I think I feel like a, a better person or a smarter person for having interviewed Zini and for having learned so much. Thank you, Zini please come back and teach us more. And if you feel the same way and you learned a lot as well, there's some stuff you can do to support us and we would be extremely grateful. I always have to make this ask at the end of a show. You can tell a friend because word of mouth is always the best way to spread the word. If you enjoyed it and found it helpful and think a friend might, pass the word along, send them the link, whatever you can do, we'd love it. You can follow us on your favorite podcast app, follow us on Instagram and TikTok. Our handle is at love dog news. And if you want, you can even buy us a cup of coffee. Yep. A big $4 cup of coffee down there in the show notes should be fairly close to the top. You'll see a link to Ko-fi, K-O-F-I. That's where you can go to make a donation. The minimum is $4 because that's about what a cup of coffee costs. So have at it. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being with us. And we will see you again next time. So long.